Amen. Uh, we're going to let the children be dismissed uh, with my wife and uh, I think Jen Markle to go back for their time in junior church. I'd like us to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Let me begin reading in verse 1. Philippians 2 and verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility think of others as better than yourself. Each one of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took upon himself the form of a servant, being made in in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Part five in our series called Contending Together, for the cause of Christ. Contending together. And we're taking this theme out of verse 27 of chapter 1. Paul says that then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Contending together for the cause of Christ. A series of discussions on the importance of relationships that we enjoy and share with one another in the context of church life. The appeal of verse 27 of chapter 1, I think, is abundantly clear. Stand together, contend together, and here's the way I think it falls out when you come into chapter 2. I think we can summarize the thrust of chapter 2 by saying this. We must pursue and protect unity together in the body of Christ. Okay, we must pursue and protect unity together in the body of Christ. It is to be a passionate concern of everyone who participates in the life of the body of Christ. Now, I believe that the issue in context here is that some form and level of friction has been emerging in the church in Philippi. That tension, that friction, that division that's Threatening unity, therefore witness, is what Paul is seeking to begin to address. And you start to pick up hints of that division as you read through this passage. Paul's emphasis in verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Sounds like the hint of a warning, doesn't it? When you get over to chapter or to verse 14 of chapter 2, he says this. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Okay, well, typically if somebody is saying, stop arguing and complaining, 
the assumption is that there's something beginning to emerge in the life of the church that is threatening its stability. When you go to chapter 4 and verse 2, I think the issue becomes a little more clear. He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Okay, so you find these hints of provoking and prompting a pursuit and protection of unity. And then you find a very clear directive to people who are valuable to Paul, but have obviously begun to experience some level of dissension or disintegration in terms of their vital relationships. So what do these verses in a quick summary tell us? I think they tell us that division was occurring amongst valuable members in the body of Christ. It was affecting their unity, therefore their effectiveness as representatives of Jesus. It was affecting church life and mission. The realistic thing I think that emerges here is this. This will happen in every church, in every family, in every workplace. It will happen wherever you have people who have a fallen nature living life together. There will be tensions and there will be a need to pursue and to protect unity together in the context of Christian relationships. The question I want to ask this morning is this. How do we fight division and preserve unity? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. If you just flip back a few pages, you'll see Paul's emphasis on this. Ephesians 4 and verse 3, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does that tell you? It tells you that unity is not naturally occurring amongst self-centered people. And so you find over and over in Scripture these directives to pursue and to protect unity. This morning, I want to approach this text by asking three very simple questions. First one is going to be this. What is unity? Why should we pursue it? And then third, how do we promote, pursue, and restore unity in the body of Christ? Okay, so first of all, what is unity? Let's look at verse 2, and then I'm going to come back to verse 1 in one second. Paul says this. Make my joy complete... By being like-minded, having the same love, being one or being united in spirit and purpose. If I was going to define unity, I would say that unity is a mindset, okay? It's an attitude that individuals within a group adopt towards each other. It is an inner desire to conduct oneself in a cooperative manner, to see one another as being on the same team. Okay, it's, it's the idea that works and that makes very effective athletic teams. They are of one mind, one purpose, one goal. And it's a goal and a purpose that they are seeking to pursue together. Unity, in this case then, is not uniformity. Okay, in some religious sects you will find that the goal seems to be uniformity and many mistake the uniformity for unity. Okay, what I mean is, Similar taste, similar diet, similar clothing, similar hairstyle. Everybody looks the same. It's possible to have that kind of appearance, just like it's possible for a football team to all be wearing the same uniform without having unity. Okay? Unity is a mindset, is an attitude that as Christians, God wants us to adopt and to pursue for his glory. Be people of the same values and loves is the way one translator captured this of one heart and one purpose kind of idea. 
We pursue unity by working together. We're unified. We protect unity in the church because we know that it is exceedingly valuable. Now, it's interesting how Paul comes at this thought of defining unity from a very personal perspective. He says, make my joy complete by adopting an attitude that will promote unity in the church. Now, what is Paul saying? I think this is what he's saying. When division is present, happiness and joy fade away. It's fascinating. If you say to someone who's somewhat familiar with the New Testament, and you say to them, what is the epistle in the New Testament that has joy as its most recurring theme? Where the word joy comes up most frequently. Guess what book it is? It's the book of Philippians. And isn't it interesting that it's in that book that Paul is seeking to address the issue of disunity because disunity leads to division and unhappiness amongst God's people. And the pursuit of unity always leads to greater joy. What is Paul saying in verse 2? Make my joy complete by being of one mind, intent on one purpose. Their disunity was affecting Paul's happiness and his contentment and his joy in Christ, as it always does. When we allow selfish pursuits to guide and to direct our desires. It is always destructive. Any parent knows this. If you have more than one child, you know how it feels when your children are at odds with each other. All right? Division always leads to unhappiness. Unity always leads to great joy. It's fun being around a plurality of siblings when they're getting along. When they're, getting, when they're not getting along, guess what? Nobody is having fun, right? Because it's, it's disturbing. Think of Psalm 133, okay? The Bible says this, Psalm 133 and verse 1. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Okay, it is a beautiful thing when believers in Christ get along. It is a beautiful thing in those moments when your family is unified and harmonious. It is a delight to be with them. But when there's tension and stress, it steals joy. And when the church loses its joy, it necessarily loses its witness. That's why we should protect it. Paul's saying, make my joy complete. I want to know, you get back earlier in chapter 1, he says, I want to know that I didn't run in vain in sharing the gospel with you. And this disunity is causing me to wonder if you really captured and grasped the heart change that comes with the gospel of Christ. Pursue unity. It is an attitude, it is a mindset, an inner, inner desire to act with my brothers and sisters in Christ in a cooperative way. That's a mindset, that's a, a choice that we make to set aside our persistence about what we want and how we want things to be. It's a desire to cooperate, realizing that we all bring different ideas and values and desires to the table in Christ. Joy will thrive and people will prosper when we pursue harmony in the church okay so first what is it it is an inner desire to conduct oneself in a cooperative way to be on the same team as it were to be on the same page why should we pursue unity and i think the reason for unity emerges very clearly in verse one and this is a fascinating passage of scripture because four times paul's going to use the word if and then after the if, he's going to identify one of the blessings that comes to genuine believers in Jesus. Okay? So notice how he says this. He says, if you have any encouragement in the Spirit, 
or I'm sorry, from being united with Christ, and if you have any comfort from his love, and if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, and if you have any tenderness and compassion. Now, when we use the word if in constructing sentences, we typically are introducing what? What are we introducing? If we say if, then. then, okay? We're introducing the idea of the potential of doubt. It may or may not be the case. But in the original language in this passage, the way the, the grammatical uh, construction is set up, it's indicating more, and you could translate the word, since you have these things, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have a spirit abiding within you, okay? So what he's doing is piling up the blessings that Christians experience, experiencing in their lives, and he's saying to them, if you have certainly trusted Jesus Christ and you know these blessings in your life, let those blessings motivate you to pursue unity. Don't be self-centered. If Christ has been so generous and kind and gracious to you, then pursue unity for his glory. So what is the fundamental or underlying motivation for the pursuit of unity? It is the blessings that we have received in Christ. And he piles them up with the assumption that the believers in Philippi know these blessings. They've experienced the heart change that comes through personal saving faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying to them, if you know what it is to be comforted by the love of Christ, if you know what it is to be touched by the compassion that he revealed on the cross, if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in your heart, if you enjoy fellowship with him and communion with him, and you know Christ better because of his personal presence. And it's off of that launching pad that Paul then says, you have every reason to pursue and to build unity in the body of Christ. So, one reason is the blessing we have in Christ. But the other reason it emerges as you get down to verse 13. Notice what he says. Verse 14. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing, which I think is a way that Paul defines the division that's present in the church, the tension. Stop complaining and arguing, all right? Because complaining is usually directed at others. Very, very seldom do people complain about themselves, okay? Unless you've played golf, okay? And you go through that thing where you miss a shot and you, you hear people lecture themselves all the time, okay? It is the strangest thing. I think I told you this one other time. One of my friends, when I did that one time, I missed a shot and my reaction told him that I was surprised. Like I was like, oh, wow, I missed that shot. And he's like, He's like, Tim, you're not that good. <laughs> he was surprised that I was surprised that I missed the shot. He's like, well, help me out. You thought that was going to go in? What were the percentages? What is Paul saying here? He's saying do everything without complaining or arguing because it tends to typify the kind of harassed and debate, debateful kind of feeling that's present in the context of the, of, of the church and in relationships and in homes. Paul's saying, stop doing that. You're killing the joy of the church. You're killing the joy of your home. Stop complaining and arguing because that complaining and arguing is always kind of driven out of what kind of a spirit? It's usually driven out of a critical spirit. Folks, we, we as a church family, you in your marriage, in your family life, in your workplace, will never experience true joy until you kill a critical spirit. It is devastating. It is always kind of on the watch for flaws and weaknesses and shortcomings in others. 
and it will have a devastating effect, effect that will kill joy, and it always, in the context of Christian relationships, it always kills testimony. And so in verse 14, Paul says, do everything, and just notice how carte blanche, do everything without complaining and arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure. That's fascinating, isn't it? If you can get your tongue under control by the power of the Spirit of God, you will become faultless, and you will become more and more like Jesus. And where is it that this is important? It's not important primarily in the context of church life. No, it's as children of God who are without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you are to shine like stars in the universe. Folks, understand this. We should pursue unity because the witness of the work of Jesus that's going to be detailed in 5 through 11, that's what's at stake. The glorious message of the gospel of Christ is often darkened and hidden from view by a critical spirit that emerges in the life of brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says do everything without complaining and arguing. Don't fight with each other. Find common ground. Cultivate a cooperative spirit because there's something huge at stake and that is the witness of Christ which is like brilliant stars set against a black, dry, back, black backdrop of the heavens. You, you stand out. Okay, if you go into your workplace with a positive attitude, thankful for the job that God's given you, yeah, it may not pay what you want, but be thankful for what God's given you. If you go into work with that kind of an attitude rather than the me-centered attitude that comes for a paycheck, people will notice you're different. You're not crassly motivated by what's written on the paycheck. You care about the people in your workplace. You're not there for a piece of paper that will pass away. You're there to make a difference in people's lives. And when you do that, you will always find yourself killing a critical spirit. Because you'll say, no, I, I shouldn't say that because that's, that's wrong. That's devastating. I'm going I'm to seek to be a cooperative individual in this workplace who seeks to care about others, who seeks to promote others and see them move ahead. That's when we are really Christians. When you join into the complaining, guess what? You sound like everybody else. I sound like everybody else. When our marriages are characterized by tension and bitterness and wounds and hurt that comes as a result of a critical spirit arguing and complaining against each other. We don't have a Christian testimony to uphold. But when we strive to be cooperative, there's a world out there, I'm telling you this, there's a world out there that is watching to see if Jesus Christ really makes a difference in your life. If he really changes marriages. They want to know. They want to know if you as a Christian in their workplace are substantially, measurably different than them because you know Christ. And you know what? Sometimes people aren't even looking to know, but when you live so distinct and different, you will capture their attention and you will be like a brilliant white light standing against the black backdrop. When I bought my wife's engagement ring, and, and if you look at it, you won't be impressed, Okay. But when I saw that diamond roll out on that black velvet in that little store down in Greenville, South Carolina, I was like, I was like, that is really cool. Because they, they set it up in a way that makes it look like amazing. I look at it today and I tell, I don't know what, what's going on with this, but people that get engaged today think they have to buy bigger rings that we bought. I don't know if you guys noticed that or not, but I, I said to people, don't show it to my wife. <laughs> That's humiliating. <laughs> it's beautiful, but just keep that to yourself. That thing rolled out on that black velvet pad. It, you know why they do that? They don't roll it out on a white table. Why? Because there's no contrast. 
There's nothing distinct that doesn't make it beautiful. Roll that on this big black velvet tabletop, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's, that's huge. <laughs> okay. I look at it today, I'm like, it looks like a chip. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking. But that, that, look, the church complains about the world too much. Okay. But the world around us doesn't know any different. Okay, they, they, they don't have the motivation of the indwelling work of Christ, the speaking voice of the Spirit of God, communion with God, His Word, brothers and sisters who encourage them toward. They don't have that. So they don't know any better. It should be that when Christians are present, they appear like a diamond on a black velvet backdrop. They are distinct. There's something valuable and precious because Christ has made a difference in their life. And the humbling part is Paul says, oh, and we have that treasure, Christ, in earthen vessels. So that in the end, it's not about us. It's about exalting Christ. That's why we should pursue, go after unity, because we know Christ. And we can make a difference in the lives that they're looking to see. That Jesus trusted and followed will actually make a lasting, measurable difference in their lives. So the first question, what is unity? It's a cooperative attitude. It's a mindset that you adopt. I'm, I'm going to stop being critical. I'm going to choose to get along with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I choose by God's grace to get along with and love my wife. I choose by God's grace to love and encourage my children instead of always being critical. It's a choice that is motivated by the grace of God that has come to you as a sinner that has changed your life, that has so richly blessed and filled you? And then the third question is, how then do we promote, pursue, protect, and restore unity in the body of Christ? Because here, isn't this true? Don't you need practical steps? I do. I was like, okay, do that. I always mess it up because I'm too self-centered. I'm too about me. And this text Paul gives us very specific steps that if we will begin to follow them, we will find that life around us begins to brighten. That the gem of our life that Christ has created will begin to kind of shed some of the stuff that gets on it and makes it dull and unattractive. He will begin to change us. How do we promote and protect unity in the body of Christ? And before I read these verses to you, I just want to say this. I have heard, and I'm sure I have in the past, been one of those pastors or preachers or teachers who has tried to soften the language of this text to make it more appealing. Okay. We don't like what this text says. In an age that is very driven towards self-fulfillment and self-realization, self-actualization, self, 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 in that kind of an age, these verses sound horrendous. And so it's easy for a teacher of God's word to soften the blow here. But I think Paul knew that the church in Philippi, they needed to be hit. So as a good parent, sometimes you might take up the volume a little bit with your kids. Stop arguing and complaining to your kids. They finally give you that look like, oh, you mean that this time. Right? Because you're, what are you doing? you're saying you can't keep acting like that. You're going to destroy each other. I read an article yesterday about a fight in a club somewhere in Florida where a guy was killed. Because of a conflict, a fight. Something happened in the relationship and people started throwing fists at each other. So all of a sudden somebody's dead. Okay, disunity has incredible power to bring devastation and destruction in relationships. 
These are the steps that we need to take to pursue it. And they are, at some level, I'll admit, radical. Notice how Paul says this in verse 3. He says, do, and I want you to catch how categoric this is, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Do nothing. Okay. What does it mean? I think it means very simply this. Never let selfishness, self-promotion be your motive. Never let your personal happiness be the fundamental and driving issue in your decisions. Why would Paul say that? Because a self-centered pattern of choices will lead to devastation in your relationships. If what you're always thinking about is you, it will be destructive. The word that's used here in the original language, it paints the picture of a day labor. That's what the word literally points to. Somebody who comes to work to get their pay for the day. They do not have a long-term or vested interest in the corporate community or in the job environment. They, they simp- they're day workers. You go hire them, they work here one day, they work here another day. And you can totally understand how a day worker would adopt a different mindset, right? I'm here for one thing. I'm here for what I make. Because tomorrow, I don't know where I'm going to be. And the picture is they have instability in their life, so they have no interest in investing in the team. Okay, what is Paul saying? Don't be a day worker, someone who pursues power for personal benefit, who just in a very simple way, works for the paycheck. Okay, don't, let, don't be driven by what it brings to you. All right, in your relationships, think about how my interactions with others are bettering and encouraging them. And then he uses the word empty conceit, which is to think highly or to have an overinflated view, inflated view of one's self, of one's importance, and of one's sufficiency. And the idea here is that one is so self-conceited that they begin to think that they don't really need the other members of the team. Okay? And they are begin to be motivated by selfish pursuits and desires. This happens in athletic teams. Okay? This is the person who's the star athlete who when they're off the field, they actually hope the team fails because it will affirm how important they are. Do you ever catch yourself thinking this? In a circumstance? Oh, I'm not there today. Well, they'll see how important I really am. Okay? And our flesh, are we capable of that? Yep. If the boss doesn't appreciate it, guarantee you think that way. I make a substantial... They couldn't survive without me. Okay? Paul's saying in the body of Christ, don't go there. Because God knows how to humble the proud. And he loves to exalt the humble. He loves to. So, the first thing is this. You will... Encourage unity that brings joy to the body of Christ if you never let selfishness be your motive. Here's the way to test this. Do you enjoy, promote, and encourage the value and success of others? Seriously, think about this. Husbands, do you make it possible in the setting of your marriage and in your home, do you make it possible for your wife to be a better woman of God? In your workplace, and just, just think, can you think of the last time that you went out of your way to do something because you knew it would benefit that person's career down the road? 
where you took a vested interest. Folks, look, the reason we are often blind to these kinds of opportunities, particularly in terms of the body of Christ, is because we are way too self-centered. Okay, we're concerned about our own promotion and our own purposes and our own gain. Paul says, never let selfishness be your motive. Kill it when you see it rising up. I think one of the ways this is, can be illustrated is in terms of athletics, when a team is beaten, like soundly and justifiably beaten, isn't it a pleasure when you hear a coach simply say, no excuses, we were outplayed today, they were the better team. Isn't that, when you hear this, it's like, go on, that's the truth. You just did better. And to be grateful for the success. You know what? They did a good job. They played, you know, all four quarters of the football game. And that's why they won. We weren't there today. Okay? Humility is, is, is it's, it's able to enjoy the successes of others because it's not driven by selfishness. The second thought that emerges in verse 3 is this. And, and let me just read the text for you. He says, but in humility, which is the contrast to ambition of self and conceit. Okay, the opposite is humility. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Here's the way I'll summarize this statement. Always think of others as more important slash deserving than yourself. Okay? Now that is not a popular statement. Always think of others as more deserving than yourself. Now, it's not a statement about qualifications and skills okay it's not like Carmelo should get up on Sunday morning and say you know Pastor Hoff is really a better guitar player than I am okay a bold-faced lie because he what is he he's trying to follow this command it, it esteem others is better than you okay I play guitar but he plays better when he doesn't okay it's not it's not referencing giftedness or saying someone's smarter than you when they're really not okay it's not encouraging Lying or unrealistic expectations or estimations of others. A lot of times that's how people see this. What does it mean? It means to see others as more deserving, as needing our service and our help. It's not our estimation of them, but it is in terms of our caring for them. Put the well-being of others before yourself. Have you ever had this happen at a doorway? It never happens on elevators. On elevators, everybody's rude. Just, just getting off, bumping into each other. But at a doorway, you ever had this happen? Where you're, you're, you're kind of waiting for the other person. They're kind of waiting for you. And you end up bumping into each other because both of you are trying to defer to the other. No, no, you go, you go, you go. Okay. It's like, that's the way life in the church, should, we should be bumping into each other Seeking to meet the needs that we are aware of in the body of Christ. Visiting uh, with Joyce Rader a few weeks ago. Got there, someone else was already there. I was kind of upset. <laughs> uh, well, and, and then I was there recently and somebody else was coming as I was leaving. There, when you see that, I guarantee you, she feels loved and supported by the body of Christ. Because people are literally bumping into each other, seeking opportunities to encourage and bless her life and heart. And... That comes to people who live that kind of life. Can you imagine if on Sunday morning we were concerned about, in a bumping each other kind of way, encouraging and loving and blessing each other? 
Paul says, in humility of mind. And that literally means to think, and this is the part we don't like, think lowly of yourself. Think less of yourself. We live in a culture that, no, you're going to feel good about yourself. before you. Now, Paul's saying, think lowly of yourself. And the word literally is to think of yourself as a servant. The word is tapenos. We get our word tapestry from that. Rug. Look, okay, oh, I don't want to be a floor mat. Well, what if God tells you to be? And don't you think some of the people in the early church felt like a floor mat? When Paul was thrown in prison? Don't you think he, he had to adopt a humble mindset? I'm here to serve Christ. Otherwise, this would really tick me off and mess with my life plan. But because he'd adopted a spirit and an attitude of humility, he was able to deal with that stuff with joy and say, look at how God's working in this situation. He wasn't like, God, why'd you put me in here? I've been faithful to you. Because he's self-important. No, he looked at it and said, God, you put me here for a purpose. I accept this position. Here's what's fascinating. You go to verse 8. It says that Jesus humbled himself. It is the exact tafeno. It's the exact verb form of the word that's used in verse 3 for humility. It's the same word. What is Paul calling us to be? He's saying, be like Jesus. He came and he humbled himself and he took on human form. And in human form, he became a servant. He washed the feet of his disciples. That's the picture. He thought more of them than of himself. Because if he was thinking of himself, he would said, why didn't one of you guys get up and wash my feet? Because he was the Lord. Do you see? Instead, he humbled himself. Not only to the cross, but to the menial service of a slave, of a house slave to show them how much he loved them and to give them an example that they could follow for the rest of their lives that would promote unity in the church bring joy and shine like a light in this world this is a hard call it's a hard task to always think of others as more important than yourself a preference that leads to indifference about my own well-being and i'm not going to try to soften it today have in the past I'm not going to try to today. I'm just going to call you to this attitude of humility that will free us to enjoy a level of unity that will capture the attention of the world around us and will transform homes, workplaces, etc., etc. Number three. And this comes out in verse four. Similar but different. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Folks, it is... I don't have to tell myself to care about myself. Okay, I, I understand that some people, because of circumstances they've been through, have, have this, have a form of humility that is unhealthy and you're seeking to help them out of that, to acknowledge their gifts and capacities, that, that you're loved by God. And you're, you're preaching the gospel to them, that God created them and saved them for his glory and that they need to stand up, okay? But for most of us, for the majority of us, I don't need someone to tell me to take care of myself. I don't. I need someone to tell me, love your wife. Be selfless in your relationship with her. Care about the needs of others more than you care about yourself. Put more time into being a blessing to others than you do into taking care of your own needs. I need people to, need to be prompted in that way. Paul understands this. Don't merely live for your own interest. And I think the emphasis is almost, it's kind of a crass self-centeredness that is unthinkable in light of biblical truth. And in light of the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ. It becomes unthinkable when you look at his life to live simply for personal benefit and gain. I ask myself this question as I look at this. Don't limit your attention to your personal concerns. The word 
that he uses in verse 4. Look to the interest of others. The word is scopeo. We get our word scope, microscope from that word. Look at, fix on, think about, uncover, discover the needs of others. That's what a servant does. And that's what we in the body of Christ are called to do, to have such care and concern for each other. Now, here's the challenge I'll give you. That is very hard to do on Sunday morning in a large crowd. It's very hard to scope out each other. To do that, here's what I believe with all my heart. You need to have more substantial, vital, personal relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ to fulfill this command. Because on Sunday morning, you're scoping out more people than you can handle. But it's in those contexts of vital relationships that you have a setting in which all of a sudden, this command is doable. In a group of six to eight to ten people, I can understand and begin to sense the real vital needs that are present in someone's life, and they can sense my needs too. We can, be, can begin to help each other and encourage each other and love each other. Do you see? Because we've cultivated a, a selfless mindset, and now we're able to think about how can I meet the needs of others? Let that become one of the most exciting things in your life. Think of the impact of this in our church. If we oriented our lives around this priority, Life is not just about me and mine, my family, my purposes, my plans. God has something bigger in mind that he wants us to participate in for his glory. Last thought, and I'll just give you this one real briefly because we're out of time. Verse 5. And I just, you, you kind of tell where Paul's going here. Your attitude, your mindset, your outlook, your, and, and the word that, that one commentator used is your disposition should be the same as Jesus. Would, would you not like, and this is what we're all thinking, right? I would love to spend a couple of days with Jesus when he's out serving. I would love to be on the road to Jer- uh, from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And blind Bartimaeus is calling out. And everybody's telling blind Bartimaeus, hey, you're an interruption to the king's uh, ascent to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, let's stop everything. And let's meet that need. Paul says, your attitude, church, in Philippi, in Washington, New Jersey, should be the same as that of Christ. And then it goes into one of the most beautiful and amazing passages in all of Scripture that captures the heart of Christ, who enjoyed the the full and appropriate pleasure of heaven. Being worshipped by the angels for him was utterly and completely appropriate. The exercise of fellowship with his father face to face for all of eternity was utterly and completely appropriate. And he set all of that aside. He humbled himself is the way the text says it. If I want to make a difference in the lives of those around me, here's what I need to do. I need to take the attitude of Christ and own it. I need to own it. And folks, when you do that, I promise you this, your wife your husband, your parents, young people, your children, parents, when you adopt the attitude of Christ, it is going to cost you, but it will bring the joy that you've been looking for and can't find in your self-centered pursuits. Because this will be a sacrifice for the glory of God. And when we pursue relationships for the glory of God, joy is always the result. Have this mind in you. Kill that self-centered attitude that makes you irritable and difficult to get along with at home. Put it to death. 
Let's say, Lord, by your spirit that has saved me and that has given me fellowship, verse 1, so fill me with your mind. I surrender myself completely to your attitude set, to your mindset. I want people around me to think that something dramatic has happened in my life. I want them to think that I see life differently all of a sudden because I do, because I do. May God help us to pursue and protect unity in the body of Christ by taking the path of Christ who renunciated all of his personal prerogatives and humbled himself and came to serve. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man, exalted, throne-sitting Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom, a rescue payment for sinners. Folks, that's the glory of the gospel. That's why Christians should be able to say, in light of what I have received, verse 1, how could I live any differently? An unselfish husband subjugates his own desires to meet the needs of his wife. An unselfish mom is not irked by the needs of her children. An unselfish athlete cares more for the team, not for the honors personally. An unselfish employee seeks to help and promote others. Look at Jesus. The songwriter said it this way, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I can't but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Folks, would it not be an awesome thing if what we hated was our pride? If what we felt contempt for was our flesh seeking to steal the glory that God deserves. Our flesh craving being pampered rather than serving others. If we would just say, God, I hate that in myself. God, kill. This is what it means in Colossians. Put to death, therefore, the deeds of the flesh. Mortify on a daily basis. Reckon them, Romans 6, dead and let the life of the Spirit emerge within you. And when he does... He will bring an awesome level of joy and pleasure and happiness in your life. If you don't know Christ, this is him. This is him. He humbled himself. Took on the form of a servant. Human form. So that in that form, he could, in his perfect righteousness, stand in your place on Calvary's cross and bear the consequence of your sin. And he wants to change your life. He wants you to get off the treadmill of performance. He wants you to know new life through his gift of salvation. That's what he wants. Takes humility to accept that too because it means the end of yourself and your performance. But it is the beginning of everlasting joy that will be there on the day you die and for the rest of your life in eternity. To God be the glory.